On this edition of the Bill Kelly Show podcast, Scott Radley sitting in for Bill today. We are talking about the year of the election, that is 2022. We've got a provincial election coming up. We've got municipal elections coming up. Is change in the air? That seems to be what some people are saying, but is it true? We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the Olympics. They open a month this week in Beijing. Is it safe to go? Should Canada be sending its athletes? What about boycotts? What about the Chinese regime? What about all these things? We're going to talk about that. And celebrities with a big platform talking about stuff they don't necessarily know much about. Aaron Rodgers, Novak Djokovic, Nicki Minaj, others. Should we be listening? What do we do with celebrities that talk about stuff that we're not really sure they are sure they know what they're talking about? We'll get into all that stuff. Stick around. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We are in 2022. It is the year of the election. That's what we're being told. The year of the vote. The year of you fill in whatever the the word is you wish to have there. The year of us going back to the polls. We did it once in 2021 with the federal election, but it's... um. We now have two more. We have provincial and municipal elections coming up. And so whether you are a fan of all this politics or not, uh, you're going to have a hard time escaping it for the next 10 months because the municipal election will be in October, almost 11 months because it's near the end. uh, Well, 10 months. Um, We've got politics coming out every pore, it seems, in 2022 want to bring in John Best, founder of the Bay Observer, who joins us now. John, how are you today? Happy New Year, Scott. Happy New Year to you, John. Thanks for doing this. Um, among the things that were, you know, people are saying the year of the election, the year of the vote, the year of whatever, we're also hearing people say this is going to be the year of change, that this is going to be the year that everything, the change sweeps across the political landscape and all that is old is swept out and all that comes in is new. You believe that? Be some change, Scott. But if, if every if everybody's looking for a showdown like in Lord of the Rings uh, between mm-hmm. the the forces of virtue uh, versus the dark side, uh, there'll be change. But I don't think it's going to be as monumental as uh, as some people are hoping. I should say virtue signaling, perhaps, versus the dark side. Yeah, well, I mean, look, there are there are those who are screaming for everybody who's been in office to be gone, that nothing is working. And um, I mean, I, I tend to agree with you. I think there will be some change, but I think the idea that this is going to be a, uh, you know, a, a leaf blower blowing through the various halls of power is, is dreamland. It, it, it never happens. No, it, it hasn't happened. Uh, we, I mean, we've had, um, in, um, I'm talking mainly about municipal here. Uh, yes. We've had municipal elections where there's been, uh, you know, some turnover uh, uh, from time to time. But I, I remember a poll that I, I either, it was a local poll, and I can't remember, it's back when I was doing a lot of consulting. I can't remember whether, whether I was involved in commissioning it or whether I just read it. But what it, what it basically said was it, it, it's quite easy to get people to say they hate city council, but they but then when you dig down, you say, well, what about your councillor? That the, they tend to like their councillor, so they talk about all oh, those buggers on council. But you, you know, especially some of these long term councillors, what what people forget is that in their day to day job, they they solve a lot of little problems. You know, they clear up. Um, little neighborhood issues and uh, they help people. So we've been around for 20 or 30 years 
you've helped a lot of people uh, just by the nature of your job. And so it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, incumbency has always been a, a major issue anyway in terms of uh, trying to generate any turnover. But then you add to that the fact that people tend to feel uh, more positive about their own counselor. The concept of counsel as a whole, though, uh, there, there seems to be this, uh, not seems, there definitely is a negative uh, uh, sort of connotation. So we'll see what happens. Uh, I'll tell you, heading into these two, the provincial and the municipal elections, uh, I really believe that the happiest politicians in the world right now are any politicians who haven't had to be in power during COVID. And I know they will say that they wish that they had been the one calling the shots and everything else. But I got to tell you, I think that almost every opposition politician deep down knows they dodged a bullet by not actually having to be on the hot seat. Yeah, well, we have three leaders holding a news conference today. And, uh, and you know, it's easy to say it's not enough, it's too late, uh, you know, those kind of comments. But I, I agree with you. Uh, I can't imagine how an Andrea Horvath or, well, she's the only real party leader that has enough seats to even be considered uh, as an alternative. Um, I just can't imagine what they would have done that would have been significantly different because it is an issue that, that really, quite frankly, is outside the skill set of most politicians. This is a medical plague. And, uh, you know, so you're sort of bouncing back and forth between the people that are complaining about being shut down and and medical people that are giving you these dire predictions. And, uh, you know, I saw Ford the other day when he made the latest announcement of the of the shutdown, and he looked like he was ready to break down and cry. It was, uh, you know, you could see the strain on his face. Yeah, and 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 John, you know what's so interesting about this is uh, there's a lot of people. And, and by the way, when I said politicians, I meant every level, every country, um, all around the world, every politician. But we're reading today that in Chicago, while, while everyone here is angry, schools are closed in Chicago. The teachers are saying, "No, we don't want to go back to school. It's not safe. Where we want remote learning." So, I mean, it's it's it doesn't matter where you are or what level this seems to have been the time that you probably are going to enhance your reputation by not having to be the one making decisions. Yeah. Which and, makes you, uh, which makes you viable when the elections come along. Yeah. The only thing is that the, the pandemic is so universal and so widespread. There really is no politician that's in office right now that, um, that hasn't had to deal with it in, in some manner, but whether that makes somebody that wasn't in office look better I'm not sure. Uh, I, I haven't heard really anything very creative from any of the opposition uh, parties, either at the provincial level or, or federally. Um, you know, you can get annoyed with Trudeau because he really sometimes is just too much. But having said that, they, they did scramble around and get millions and millions of doses. We're not complaining about vaccines uh, availability anymore. We're more complaining about people not taking them. Um, so I, I'm not sure, uh, you know, if people necessarily are going to pivot to somebody that has not had any experience in the matter, but we'll see. No, but, but one thing that we have seen many, many times in recent elections, especially, and again, not just in Ontario, I mean, all over the place is when people are cranky, they vote for change. They don't necessarily know that the change is going to be better, but if we change, something's bound to get better, right, John? If we just ch- change the person, things will improve. And again, I'm not just talking Ontario, although we do have the election coming up here. 
crankiness well, no leads to change. When you've got a, a restless electorate, it, it creates an opening for somebody if they're smart enough to be able to exploit it. And if they have a, a candidate that has um, sufficient uh, credibility or looks like they offer an alternative, then yeah, maybe maybe something can happen. It, it certainly roils the waters and um, creates uh, uh, at least the opportunity uh, to, uh, you know, reduce the power of incumbency, which is, uh, you know, the, what powerful. really is, is tremendously powerful, especially at the municipal level. But, um, you know, uh, the, the, the only job that seems to get changed at the municipal level frequently is the mayoralty. Um, as far as council goes, it's pretty much, uh, unless somebody retires, uh, there's, there's, you know, you can count on one hand the number of incumbent councillors that have been defeated over the last 10 years. Uh, let, let's take a few minutes here just on the provincial. We'll go to municipal in a second. But sure. Um, assuming, let's just assume for a second that by June, when the election rolls around, COVID is still a thing. And mm-hmm. whether it's Omicron or whether it's some new variant, we hear about this IHU or whatever it's called in France now or whatever. If COVID is still raging everywhere in the world and here, does Doug Ford have any chance at all at re-election if people are still locked in their homes and schools may be closed or whatever else? Is that a death knell for his re-election hopes? I, I think it would depend uh, on uh, what is being offered, uh, what the alternative is that's being offered. Um, you know, I mean, we've, we've had two years of Doug uh, running this uh, show, and, uh, you know, there's been ups and downs, but... Uh, I think the one thing he's managed to do and, and uh, that he, he comes across, whether you agree with his politics, whether you voted for him, he does seem to be authentic. Uh, you know, he seems like he, you know, he, he looks like he cares. And uh, whereas Trudeau, and again, this isn't, I'm not talking about in a partisan political way, I'm just talking about the way they present themselves. Trudeau seems inauthentic uh, in so many ways. And uh, so, you know, I, I'm not sure that I see, you know, I'm, I'm, if you survey what the alternatives are, so we, we've got Andrea Horvath in the NDP, we've got uh, Stephen Del Duca, who, I mean, let's be honest, he's hardly uh, an inspiring uh, orator. Um, I, I'm sure the Liberals are going to gain more seats. They're not a seven-seat party in, in the scheme of things. But is there enough there uh, to... Uh, to throw out Ford, I mean, if there's some catastrophic screw-up, maybe, but um, I think uh, it would be very hard for, uh, you know, either of the oppositions to convince people that they could just wave a magic wand to make this all go away. What about the other side? What what if COVID somehow in the next few months uh, just vanishes and uh, life does kind of return to normal and people are suddenly feeling just euphoric because they can get back to doing everything that they wanted to do before. Does that surge of everything make everyone forget what just happened for the past couple of years and carry Ford back to office? Well, I guess it depends on whether, you know, obviously he can't be blamed for the pandemic. So the only thing he could be blamed for is how did he handle it? I don't know. I mean, a, a lot of what's going on today with this news conference is more about the unions uh, and, and certainly, uh, you know, I think we all agree that uh, the one thing the pandemic has uncovered is, uh, especially in long-term care, that, the, you know, the, the salaries and the working conditions are just 
very poor, and that's something that the government can fix. I, I don't know. It's it's an interesting question. Uh, you know, if if we don't have the pandemic, does it mean that we can now focus on other political issues and we can get more ideological and and therefore there would be an opening for another party to you know to gain strength? I, I suppose that's possible. Yeah, I just I wonder if, and I've been trying to think about this. I'm, I'm just trying to find some other issue that could possibly take over from COVID, regardless of what, as I say, regardless of whether it's here or not. I just, we've been so inundated and so completely engulfed with this for so long. I just can't think of the thing that someone's going to be able to turn into that issue that changes the provincial election by June, just six months from now. No, uh, to be honest, and the polls certainly at this point are, are suggesting that that Ford's in pretty good shape, um, but that's now, and the election is six months from now, so you know that that could certainly change. But uh, they're raising a lot of money, uh, the the conservatives, and uh, he's got uh, you know he's done some things already. He's raised the minimum wage, uh, which got him an endorsement from the the guy that's the head of the public sector union uh, for for almost, for now for now for now but it was uh, you know he's he's up there with these two major union leaders Jerry Diaz and Smokey Thomas and they're praising him to the skies i thought i'd never see anything like that uh, so you know uh, being in power he's got the ability to introduce measures between now and june that'll make people feel better um, I think uh, he's, his current issue right now is he's, he's got to do something for these uh, restaurants. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, I mean, they've, they've just been whacked so many times. I think there has to be some kind of measure brought in quickly to, to help those people out. And I know he's, he, he wants to get all the money for these various measures from the, from the feds, but I think we may be at a point where Ontario has got to, got to, dip into the credit card a little bit to it's, help these people it's, out. It's all the same it's all the same taxpayer's pocket and wallet, isn't it, John? Ultimately sure I mean, it whether is. it's you the feds or whether it's and that's what we owe. <laughs> that's what that's it's us. It's, they don't I mean people yeah. always forget this. It's not the government's money, it's our money. It's just, you know, which pocket it's gonna come from. All right, let's move to municipal for the minutes we have left here. Yep. Um at this point with now look I've said this many times on the air I think social media is a lousy place to take real stock of what's going on in the world because I think an awful lot of people aren't on there or don't state their opinions and the people who are loudest and angriest do and you can get a skewed perspective. That said, who in the world would want to be a city councillor these days? I mean, it just it seems like you are just your the pay is okay, but you're just asking to be abused nonstop. Yeah, your popularity, uh, your, the, the most popular you are is on election night, and it goes downhill from there. Um, you know, the money's a little better now because they, they rearranged the salary structure. So they're, they're making about 100000 a year, which is pretty good money in most people's minds. But it's, you know, it's a job that um, I think probably entails uh, a lot of hours that, that people don't see. Um, because the phone never stops ringing. And uh, I've talked to people that worked as, as uh, counselor's assistants, and, uh, you know, that phone is ringing constantly with, with complaints, and uh, they can't possibly get around to, uh, you know, make a personal visit on every phone call they receive. Um, and then there's just that general attitude of the media, of, uh, you know, groups like I elect, 
um, that, that it's just ad hominem hatred for counsel. Well, some of counsel. Some of counsel. Well, yeah. But, you know, but it is a, just kind of a general <clears throat> slamming of counsel. I, I think we all know um, who I elect uh, likes on counsel and, and who they don't. So, uh, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing. But I think you're right about social media. Um, it's, uh, it's powerful in a sense, uh, but a lot of people, I don't think a lot of people are uh, engaged. It's, sometimes you look at these postings and they've been up for a day or two and they've got like 20 likes and, you know, five or six retweets. And you wonder, is it really a powerful movement or we've got 40 people talking to each other every day on social media? It's hard to say. Yeah, but do you believe, I was talking to someone the other day who said, you know what the one or one of the areas that they're concerned about counsel is, uh, that they listen to these things. And on that point, do, do you think counselors have learned to not pay attention to some of the louder critical voices? Or do you think they should not listen? Or how do you, if you're a counselor, how should you look at those comments? Do you just say, no, it's only 20 people? Or do you say, well, they may reflect more? What do you do with those comments? I think um, a number of them have simply uh, shut off uh, social media other than their own postings, um, that they they just don't go there. And and I talked to a member of the legislature that told me that, um, that uh, that individual simply stays away from social media because it's so demoralizing. Uh, It doesn't help at all. Uh, the input isn't useful, <clears throat> so they uh, they just stay away from it. I, I you know I I think it'd be dangerous. I think if if anybody in in elected office took their cues solely from social media, because it, you know it's just an angry, ugly place these days. There's there's just it, very it, little positive on there. Yeah, that that's that, that's the thing is that uh, I don't I don't see anybody saying Councillor X did a great job for me on this. Uh, on social media that that doesn't happen but anything that's wrong you get hammered on and it, it becomes very easy to get swept up in the feeling that every single thing is wrong and that's not to say there aren't things that are wrong but it's you you could very easily believe that there has not been a single thing done right ever at any city hall if you just followed social media absolutely and and you know that that becomes a a, a very corrosive kind of environment that, uh, you know, as you say, I, I think there are people of quality who should be on council. In fact, sometimes when you look at, at who ran last time, you'll see somebody that only got four or 500 votes, and then you check out their resume and you say, my God, they, you know, they well-educated, uh, good job, um, you know, the kind of people that you think might add some value. I, I think what's devalued on council um, is the political skills, uh, you know, that, you know, politics is a dirty word, but, um, you, you don't last 30 years on council or 25 years on council without having some political skills. And, um, a, a lot of the people that run against counselors are kind of wide eyed, um, you know, intelligent, well-meaning people, but they just don't know, uh, you know, the, the kind of, skills you need to to survive in that environment and and then the other thing that you get with with all this stirring up against council what you get is five or what is absolute heaven to a counselor is to find out that there's five people running against them 
because mm-hmm. <laughs> you know then that you know you you can go to Florida now for the campaign because they're going to split all the anti you vote and and you're back. And, and we you only can't have stop people from running. It's not like no no no. We, we can't, and John, we only have a minute or so left here. So very quickly, uh, less than a minute left, actually, um, with the mayoral races all over the place. And again, I mean, here in Hamilton, we don't really know yet, but d- is this a time when there is this seeming swell for change? Is this a time you expect to see a lot of qualified people put their name in for mayor because there's a feeling that maybe there's a chance that I could win? Or is this a time when you don't see that because of what we've just been talking about is I'm not sure that if I'm a respected person in the community, I really want to put myself on that platform and then in two years be hated. I think there's a lot of qualified people kicking the tires right now, Um, uh, whether they actually end up uh, putting their name on a ballot, we will see. But um, there's definitely some interest in the Merrildy race. That is John Best, founder of the Bay Observer. Always love having you on, John. Thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are talking about the Olympics. And if you're wondering why we're talking about the Olympics, well, because a month from now, a month this week, the athletes will be performing in Beijing. That is the plan. That it is a month from this week that the games, the Winter Olympics are scheduled to open. And I don't even know that I need to say scheduled to open because I truly get absolutely no sense that they will not open. There seems to be no discussion about any kind of delays or anything like that. The games a month from now will open in Beijing. I want to bring in Dr. Angela Schneider. She is a director of the International Center for Olympic Studies at Western University in London. Uh, She is an Olympian herself. Angela, thank you for the time today. I really appreciate it. Oh, good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Before we get into all the really, really, really serious stuff about the Olympics, I want to ask you about something that I saw the other day. Um, Gary Bettman, the NHL commissioner, said that he was talking on uh, at the outdoor game that was held on the weekend. He says he has asked the IOC to move hockey to the Summer Olympics so that his players can play. What do you think the idea, what do you think about the idea of putting ice hockey, or just hockey as we call it in Canada, in the Summer Olympics? It's kind of a, a strange idea, especially for environmentalists. <laughs> but you, you, what it indicates, though, is the power of the professional league scheduling. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, the other very powerful uh, influences come from soccer in, in affecting, you know, they only allowing certain age groups competing because it, they mm. don't want it to interfere with their league. So it does, it does reflect that. Um, and it also reflects, though, the players' desire, I think, yes. to yes. compete. So so they're trying to find a way uh, and a compromise. But from an environmentalist perspective, I'm sure people are like, you know, this is very strange. Uh, look at the way we're turning our environment upside down for this. It's, well, it's a funny perspective, that's all. It is, it is. And I've thought the other way around, and you talk about powerful organizations. I've always wondered why basketball is not in the Winter Olympics because that's when their season is generally, just like hockey is, although it becomes a Summer Olympic sport. I always thought it would make more sense to put the basketball tournament with the NBA players in the Winter Games, but you know what? Every, everyone's got their ideas. It's um, I don't think either is going to happen, however. Um, Angela, by, listen, by, by this time a couple summers ago, 
um, when things weren't even as bad, it seems, with COVID as they are now. The Tokyo Games had already been postponed and put off for a year. We are not getting that sense at all with Beijing. Why not? Well, I think in part, um, many people have argued that the Tokyo Games were a success given the pandemic in the sense that um, they managed to pull it off without a super spreading event happening. And they managed to hold a reasonable games. Um, so I think that's part of the reason. Uh, there's the experience of having done it and done it fairly successfully. Now, that was a different variant time. Uh, that was not uh, what we're dealing with now with the infectiousness of, of this particular variant. But uh, I think that's part of the story. The other part of the story is that it was actually Canada and the COC, the Canadian Olympic Committee, that took the stance first that they were not going to go. They, they, they did not want to risk their athletes. And then the IOC uh, postponed after Canada, then Australia, and a few other countries, uh, their, Canadian, their, their Olympic committees followed suit. So there was a different environment from that perspective. We we haven't had, although um, we have had uh, Shoemaker express some concerns, um, he has not said, or the Canadian Olympic Committee has not said that they're not sending anyone. They are expressing concerns about how they're going to get there and qualify because of the stringent requirements uh, by the Chinese for the athletes' testing protocols to get into the country at all. Meaning what? So, so, so for example, right now, they have to test negative in a way that's much more extreme than was the case for Tokyo. Um, so they have to get over there. They have to get into the country. They have to show that they're clear and clean from the virus uh, for a significant amount of time, longer than before. And so, as you know, this variant is so infectious, many people are getting it not knowing that they have it, and also the symptoms aren't as extreme for, for many people, uh, for particularly for those who have been fully vaccinated, uh, including the booster. So we are not seeing um, the symptoms the way we did last time. So, so all of these things make it a, a different environment. Also, China has managed, at least from media reports, to contain this uh, this variant of the virus very well so far. So they seem to have um, a clean, cleaner environment or a stronger environment. Now, that's based on our media reports. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's very hard to tell. But also, it, we don't know where this is going to go. I mean, there could be an outbreak in China and that would shut the whole thing down. Yeah, I mean, I, I, all those things I think are very, very valid points. I also wonder how much, if at all, this is a case of, you know, the IOC seemed pretty bold and willing to tell Tokyo that we're going to put you on hold. I, I wonder how bold the IOC is to stand up to China and tell them that your games are not going on or if they're just sort of not really excited about taking that stand. Well, you know what I think is interesting is, is that at least one IOC member has said that, look, you know, if there are several countries that cannot get into China because they can't meet the testing protocols and the competition at these Olympic Games is therefore watered down so significantly that it doesn't seem to be an Olympic Games, then the IOC would not recognize it as an Olympic Games. And that was by uh, uh, Richard Pound. 
that was an interview that was done by Richard Pound. He, he well, and of, of, of all the people who are willing to make strong statements on these things, that doesn't surprise me that it's him. Whether you agree with him always or disagree, I mean, th- there is one person who is willing to take a stand, and that seems to be him more often than not. It is, and and I, I come that c- comes from years and years and years of experience, um, and also being the senior member now of the IOC. What about the athletes? Uh, I mean, they they want to go, of course. I I don't doubt that they absolutely want to go. They've been training for this for four years, more than four years, to be able to go and have this. Do you think that they? are legitimately concerned about what's going on with COVID right now, or after all the training and everything else, they aren't even thinking about that. They're just thinking about, just get me over there so I can compete. Well, I think there's a mixed bag of of responses. I mean, they're trying to stay focused. I mean, that is the job uh, of an Olympian preparing for competition is to stay focused. There are always crises. There's always distractions. There's always something going on. So that's one thing. That's part of their job to stay focused. Um, uh, on the other hand, this situation is, is different than Tokyo um, because of the rate of infections. Like it's, so I'm sure that those that have been following anything in the media, and they may purposely not be following the media to try and not be. be distracted by this, uh, are, are thinking about this and are, and are concerned and are, are, are obviously in a similar situation and trying to figure out, is this going to happen? Is this going to go forward? And that causes extreme anxiety. Mm. Put yourself back in your athlete shoes for a second, if you can. Uh, is it a good, if you go there for the opportunity to live your dream and who knows, maybe, I mean, you were a medalist, uh, maybe win a gold medal for some of them that could set you up for the rest of your life. Is it a good trade-off to go and have that in exchange for maybe getting COVID and maybe having to quarantine in China for four or five weeks? It sounds like if you're an athlete, that's, that's probably not a bad deal to make. Well, I, I think that for um, a significant number of athletes, that would be the case. That would that would they would be thinking like that. That uh, that probably based on what we're seeing from fit young athletic people, the illness is not being totally severe, and therefore, you know, if I get a sore throat or something, that seems like a pretty darn good deal for the chance to compete in the Olympics. That that's that I, I would guess that's what a lot of them would be thinking. It, it is, but it is also the case that. Um, some are expressing some anxiety about having to stay in China and yes. quarantine for a length of time there. This isn't just your average country. So so there are concerns about that as well. And again, generating more anxiety. But I think you're right in, in uh, saying that uh, would they be thinking this way and, and weighing out the risks. And, uh, and the reasoning, too, is because... Um, the majority of athletes only get to one Olympics. It's not the case that the majority get to multiple. That That's the minority. So it, it, they may well be making this assessment and saying, this is my my uh, only kick at the can, and I, and I want to take it. Uh, as I've said a couple times now, and I don't think you probably mind hearing it, you were an Olympian, you were an Olympic medalist. That's uh, something I'm, I'm sure you never mind hearing people remind you of over and over again. But you, that makes, that means you understand what the experience of an Olympics is. And this is beyond me and other people watching it from home. Can you, as an athlete, imagine going to an Olympics in which you're basically quarantined in the athlete's village in your room, except when you're competing or training? Because most Olympics, there's an, there's an entire experience for the athletes who go. 
Yes. No, it's a severely truncated Olympic experience. There's no question about it. But the focus is on the primary thing for many of them, which is the sport itself. Um, but for sure, there is a great loss there. Absolutely. That Olympic experience is, is quite extraordinary and extremely rare, and it is precious. Uh, it, it really is precious. And it is the case that for this situation and also for those that went to Tokyo, um, there was a, a tremendous loss. Uh, but at the same time, at least the ones that got to Tokyo, they got to race, they got to go, they got to compete. Um, so, I, you know, I still think that they would say, this is great that I, I've made it and I got this chance, even though I didn't get the full Olympic experience with it. And, you know, many coaches and teams now have been trying to reduce the Olympic experience by not letting their athletes or suggesting their athletes not go to the opening ceremonies, which I, I'm opposed to because I know the experience of those opening ceremonies uh, was absolutely um, life-changing for me. And, mm. and I think that's a tremendous loss. Uh, so, so I do think there's been a movement um, to professionalize the experience, just focus on sport itself. But I, I do think that takes away from the cultural experience that makes the Olympics different from the World Championships, for, for example. Uh, health is is clearly health COVID Omicron whatever it's clearly the main issue right now. But there's a second main issue that's been talked about now for a number of years dealing with an Olympics in Beijing, and that is politics. We've had lots of calls from lots of different corners over the last few years for a boycott or to do something to stand against the Chinese aggression with the Uyghurs or with Taiwan or Hong Kong or with the two Michaels or you know, whatever else. Are, are you surprised or not surprised that that didn't really seem to gain much traction? Well, I'm, I'm not surprised in a sense. I mean, I, I was watching closely because we have the experience of former boycotts and, and we know that they have not been successful and the athletes paid the price for them um, and they didn't achieve the ends that they were designed for. And this would have been the case this time as well. Um, there's no question, though, absolutely no question that this is an extraordinarily important topic and issue that needs to be dealt with. The question is, why would you use your athletes to deal with it when you know that's not going to work? And why don't you instead work on the things that will? <laughs> so we're talking about where's the money? Who's going to be impacted by financial or economic gain? So I'm talking about trade sanctions. I'm talking about business deals. I'm talking about sponsorship. I'm talking about big dollars. Those, those things speak volumes in making change in politics and policy. Athletes not showing up for the Olympics do not. That, that's true. Although I do think back, and I don't want to make the comparison. I, you know, I, I hate any time someone just drops Hitler into the discussion and says, "Oh, it's Hitler," because you know what? It's not. No, no one is Hitler but Hitler. But I do look back and I go, "Yeah, but back when there was the Berlin Games, if we knew then everything that we know now, we probably would not have gone to those Olympics. We would have said that's just not something we're going to support and let them have their moment in the sun." And again, we I'm not Jesse Owens. That's that's true. And Jesse Owens spoke on human rights profoundly to this day. A hundred percent right. A hundred percent right. And, and more so than any boycott. So, okay, so, so what about is, that? So my point is, is that there are athletes who actually are aware of the issue and use their platform 
and use the uh, the tremendous impact that they can make worldwide. Not everybody, of course. This isn't everybody's ability. This isn't everybody's story. But we all can relate to the Jesse Owens story as a human rights story. And the fact that he did it at those games, at those games, is what makes it special. I love that you mentioned that because let me ask you now, again, as a former Olympian, as someone who's been there, and as someone who is now very involved, an athlete comes up to you, they have very strong convictions, they're going to the Olympics, they have very strong convictions, and they say, Angela, should I, if I get the chance, if I win a medal, if I'm on the podium, if I have an interview, should I make a political statement while I'm at the games, while I have that platform, and while the world might hear me, what would you say to them? Well, if you'd have asked me when I was 24 going into my Olympic Games, I would have said absolutely yes. <laughs> I absolutely would have said yes, no question. Um, obviously, we look at it now, we see there's been actually some movement on Rule 50 with the IOC, meaning that, well, there had to be, because they don't have control over the athletes' social media and <laughs> what they do. The athletes are so much more powerful now. Um, they have direct access to the world through social media with no filters. And there's a cost for that. You know, there's pros and cons. You have to be extraordinarily careful about your responsibility in those cases as well. But they do have the way to influence um, that we never have had in the past, which is quite extraordinary. Yeah, I, I, my only concern is with that. And, and look, I, I love the idea. And certainly, as you point out, the example of Jesse Owens is the perfect one um, because he did that. However, I thought, well, you know what, if, if someone did that in China, um, really, the, the China, nothing would happen to that person. They'd be able to do it, and the Chinese regime wouldn't be happy. But, you know, they're not going to make someone disappear when the eyes of the world are on them. And then what happened to Peng Shui, and I suddenly, who was probably China's most famous athlete or among them, and then I went, yeah, I don't know if when I'm over there I want to be making any kind of statements. It suddenly, yeah. there's a chill. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's a very legitimate concern to, to raise. But it is the case, it's actually the IOC's responsibility, the safety of these athletes. They have a contract with China. And the primary, one of the primary things that has to be guaranteed in that contract is the safety of the athletes. So China would be violating in a way that would be tantamount to declaring war. Like it, it would be so extreme uh, to do it with another athlete. I'm not talking about with Chinese athletes. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about mm -hmm. any other athlete. And the second thing is, the eyes of the world are on there for more than one day. You know, look at all the interviews that these athletes got when they came home from Tokyo. There, there mean, are other have, opportunities, for sure. There are other opportunities. And it lasts for a few weeks. It's not over in a day. So, in fact, you know, it, uh, it would be perfectly reasonable for an athlete to say, yeah, I'm not going to risk this in China, but when I get home or on my social media feed, I'm going to do this. Dr. Angela Schneider, we got to cut it there, unfortunately. We could talk for an hour, but I really appreciate the time today. Thank you for this. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. You may have heard that tennis star Novak Djokovic was... Uh, was He's heading to the Australian Open. He's the defending champion there. He was uh, th this week. Um, and he had received an exemption, a vaccine exemption to enter the country. He's against vaccinations. However, when he arrived this week, his visa was revoked. That vaccine exemption was pulled in 
probably large measure, I think it's fair to say, because of a gigantic outcry in Australia from people there, the public saying, um, hold on a second, we have to do everything vaccine-wise, but you want to bring in a tennis player and he doesn't have to follow any of our rules? Explain this. So that was pulled. He's now, I believe, in a quarantine facility somewhere. He's probably not having a great old time in Australia right now. He's about to be sent home, I guess. Anyway, this has spurred the latest round of Vax Novax, not Novax Djokovic, although now that I say it out loud, I hadn't even considered it. Maybe that should be his new nickname, Novax instead of Novak. Anyway, we carry on. Uh, we have seen this in recent weeks with Green Bay Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers and Nicki Minaj and other celebrities who are either hesitant or against the vaccine. So the question becomes, I think, and I think it's a fair question, is this a real problem or have people always had dissenting views on all kinds of controversial issues, including the famous, and this is simply part of the discussion that happens with issues that are controversial or that have different points of view. Timothy Caulfield is a professor at the University of Alberta. He is the Canada Research Chair in Health, Law, and Policy, and much more relevant, although all of that is very important, much more relevant, author of a number of books, including Is Gwyneth Paltrow Wrong About Everything? When Celebrity Culture and Science Clash, uh, Timothy Caulfield joins us now. Thank you for this. As always, love having you on. Thanks for having me on, Scott. All right, so I think that most of us assume that celebrities' words carry more weight than the average person. Do they? Uh, yes, they do. Yeah, so this, to answer your question, this does matter. It really does matter. Uh, it may seem frivolous. You know, who cares what Aaron Rodgers says? You know, Djokovic, you know, does he really deserve all this, this backlash? It does matter, and we have good evidence to back that up. E- even if you don't, think that um, Aaron Rodgers is a scientific expert. And I think even his fans, you know, even those who are supporting him aren't going to say he's a scientific expert. We know that they can have a huge influence on our public discourse and, and they can, they can influence health behaviors. And, and, and that's for a number of reasons. First of all, they just got a big megaphone, right? You know, here we are talking about Aaron Rodgers and Djokovic. They have a big, they have a big megaphone. Uh, secondly, uh, they, and this is, I think, really the case for Aaron Rodgers, they become this platform for nonsense, right? And, and that's really, I and mean, he's a really good example of that. You know, he, first of all, he lied to the, to his team about his vaccination status. And, and then he gave this sort of half, <laughs> half apology. I don't know if it's an apology. He just said he, he's responsible for his comments. Of course you are, Aaron Rodgers. Um, but that, but more importantly, what he does is he, 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 he becomes this, this avenue for people to find misinformation. And, you know, he talked about ivermectin and he talks about IV vitamin therapy and he talks about other supplements and he talks about, you know, the idea that vaccines are tied to infertility. No, they're not. Um, and, and that is really, really problematic. So yes, uh, this really does matter. In fact, uh, if I could, Scott, go a little bit further, there's been research that has shown in the context of COVID, it matters. Interesting study out of Oxford showed that a lot of the misinformation has as its sort of origin story, uh, a celebrity or a prominent individual. And there's been other research more recently that has, again, shown that celebrities uh, can often be the conduit 
through which we all hear about this nonsense. All right, but Aaron Rodgers is not a dum dum. He was a he was a the, the he was a successful guest host of Jeopardy. Who at one time people were saying he should be the new Alex Trebek. He's clearly a brilliant man. So clearly we should listen to him. You know, I, I think that that's one of the reasons that we're there's been so much of a you know backlash against Aaron Rodgers because I think there's also a little bit of disappointment there. Um, and I, you know, a little, uh, quick aside, I'm a huge NFL fan. You know, I, I'm almost embarrassed to say that. So this has hit me on a personal level, Scott, because I'm finding <laughs> it hard to watch the NFL because it's, you know, any team, but Aaron Rodgers, and unfortunately he's probably going to win the Super Bowl and the, and the MVP this year. Um, but, but you're right. You know, he, he comes across as, you know, very smart, you know, someone with broad interests. And, and so I think that that is added to the, the potential sway of his comments, but, but also of course the, the, the impact of the misinformation that he's pushing. Okay. So is it a case then, because I mean, you've written about celebrities and the sway that they can have and the, the, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, famously that, you know, the title of your book, is it a case that we look to them and, and we can simply point to them and say, see, someone else feels the same way I do. And it doesn't really matter who the celebrity is or whether we like them or not, but it validates our position because someone who's in a position of under the spotlight shares our thoughts. Yes, I, I think that is that is absolutely part, you know one element and an important element. I think the other reason that celebrities can be so um, persuasive and have so much influence is they are an anecdote. Right? They're this high-profile, often you know attractive, powerful, rich anecdote. So. You know, if they feel this way, if this works for them, uh, maybe it'll work for me. Um, and, and that, in addition to that, and I think you touched on this in your question, uh, I think they're particularly powerful if you can relate to them. Now, I don't mean that, you know, we, we can't really relate to Aaron Rodgers or Gwyneth Paltrow or Tom Brady in, in the sense that they're just like you, but they may speak to your values, right? And um, that's certainly one of the ways that a lot of the wellness brands are, are, are created, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow being a very, very good example of that. Um, but, uh, you know, Aaron Rodgers may speak to concerns, intuitive feelings that people have, and, and they, he, he kind of gives a voice for them, he becomes a voice for them, right? So I think that is also uh, one way that celebrities can have an impact. But I also think, Scott, that's why we have to take this seriously, and we have to make sure that we counter this misinformation. And, and we, we have to ask people like Joe Rogan, for example, not to give them a platform to push their bunk. That's not silencing, right? That's not censorship. That's the marketplace of, of ideas working when you, we say, you know, don't give vo a voice to these fringe harmful ideas. All right. Let me ask about that because, and again, it involves Aaron Rodgers because the other day he was on a podcast and he, he, what he said, and this is a quote is, if science can't be questioned, it's not science anymore. It's propaganda. And let, let's pretend we're not talking about COVID for a second because uh, you can disagree with his positions on vaccines or whatever, but is that statement not worthy of a discussion? Is it, does he not, whether you agree with his COVID position, is he not right on that, that we should be able to talk about science? And if he has a different view, then okay, let's talk about it. Well, one of the, I, I found that, that quote infuriating for uh, that exact reason, Scott. Because what he's trying to do, and he does this very effectively, and others, Joe Rogan does this effectively too, is he tries to frame his position as kind of noble and his position as just asking questions, jacking off, which has become a very common strategy for pushing misinformation because 
Who can be against that? Science is all about asking questions and critiquing the evidence. But Scott, that is happening. That has happened on virtually all the topics that he's talking about. He's not asking questions about science. He's denying science. And I think that that is a really important, important distinction. Um, but his by, by framing it the way he does frame it, and that quote has gotten so much airtime, right? Of he, course. He tried to paint himself as, as, you know, this brave fighter for freedom of expression. And that's not the case at all. What he's actually doing is he's setting up a situation of false balance where fringe ideas, harmful fringe ideas are portrayed as if they're somehow scientifically credible. And that's not the situation at all. He's actually denying the evidence, not asking questions about it. All right, let me take his comment one step further then, because here in Canada, you know, we have been told since COVID started, we've had things that were deemed to be the science that ended up being wrong. Originally, we were told that it was that COVID was not going to be a serious health issue. We were told that by, um, I think, Patty Haidu or someone. And we were told, don't wear masks. We were told you shouldn't have to quarantine when you come into the country. And, and these things have changed. So why those things would suggest that what he said about questioning the science was a good thing? Um, yeah, and I think those are all very good examples. And let me tell you why what he's doing is different. Because virtually all of those topics um, were, uh, uh, those statements were made during a time when there was a great deal of uncertainty. And we didn't have a lot of data about masks, for example, right? The science evolved and, and, and we started to use different methods to explore their value um, but we do have good clinical trials on, for example, now ivermectin. You know, we have good clinical trials on that. We have good clinical trials on hydroxychloroquine. We have a body of evidence that now tells us about the value of those drugs. And we know that they aren't right now. We don't have any good evidence to suggest that they're effective or beneficial in the context of COVID. And he's just denying the existence of of that evidence. You could ask questions about, is the earth really round? Uh, does gravity exist? You can ask questions about it, anything, but you have to place <laughs> it in the context of the body of evidence, the scientific consensus that exists right now. Okay. Back to the celebrity part about this. Does, does who the celebrity is matter? Because it seems to me that we're probably more likely to believe the celebrity or trust them or follow them or buy into what they're saying if we like them or philosophically or whatever other reason, agree with them? Um, yeah, for sure. I, I think that that makes a difference. And, and we actually have research in the context of, of political endorsements uh, on this, in, in this space, you know, uh, you know, is it a good idea to have a, a celebrity endorse you if you want to get elected? Right. And there have been interesting studies that have shown that yes, it can be beneficial, but you know, as you point out, you know, you have to like the celebrity. So if Oprah endorses you, that's probably going to be more beneficial than if Alex Jones endorses you. Uh, and, and it goes back to what I said earlier, especially if that celebrity kind of speaks to your, to your values. Uh, and that's, I think, absolutely playing out here in the context of, of, you know, celebrities talking about COVID. So Aaron Rodgers now has become endorsed by the alt-right. He's been endorsed by a lot of conservatives. Um, and uh, so for, for that community, he is seen as a credible source of information. Then, you know, on the other side of the political spe spectrum, 
you know, not not so much. Uh, but it can also have an impact on the celebrity. You know, he's lost endorsements. You know, there's questions about whether he's going to win the MVP. He's going to, um, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, well, Tom Brady might still sneak on... it out. But yes. <laughs> uh, well, Brady, I think I, I, you know, I think <laughs> no, on the numbers, I think he deserves it over, uh, over until he speaks uh, out. Uh, until he speaks out about against vaccines, and then they'll be tied again. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly, and that could happen. Don't say that. But, but okay, so there's there's the celebrity part of it and our, our fondness or non-fondness because, I mean, I think the other way, it, it can work the other way too. If you really despise a celebrity either because of their politics or whatever else, you probably dismiss their view. Their celebrity power may be vanishing, but, but there's another word that I just mentioned there. And, you know, politicians have become celebrities of a kind. How does politics factor into this? Because politics seems to factor into everything these days. If a politician that you like says, hey, this vaccine is great, are you more likely to follow it because the politician that you like has said it? What if it's a politician you dislike and they say it? Are you less likely to take it? I, I think yes to all the above, right? And and I think that uh, unfortunately this has become incredibly political. And this, you know this is a, a trend that we've been following very closely at our own in our own work. Unfortunately, this has really become about ideology increasingly. I think maybe we've talked about this even in the past, Scott. There was an interesting study that came out in November by Angus Reid, and they asked, um, you know, they asked the individuals who've decided not to get vaccinated, why are you not getting vaccinated? Um, and the two top reasons they were tied at 58% were based on ideology, it's my right, and concerned about the vaccine. So that shows the degree to which ideology has sort of risen as one of the main reasons why people are sort of embracing this information, making decisions about, about, about public health. Uh, and what's challenging there, Scott, is it's much more difficult to fight misinformation when it is about ideology, when it is about personal identity, um, because you're less, much less likely to give up the idea, right, when it's, when it's how you identify yourself. And, and, you know, a perfect example of this is, um, and I don't know how many people are going to remember this, you, I'm sure you do, but back when the vaccine was rolling out in the States, both Joe Biden and Kamala Harris expressed doubts at a vaccine created by Donald Trump's administration. Now, I know there's nuance there and there's context and, and within the answers, you know, all that stuff, but they expressed concerns about a Donald Trump-created vaccine. Now, they are both pro, very staunch pro-vax candidates, politicians now, but politics seemed to be underlying even then whether this was a good thing or not a good thing. Uh, you're right. And, and to give you a sense of how sort of ossified um, the politics can become, I'm, I'm sure you've seen the clips where Donald Trump uh, told people to get the vaccine and get the boosters. Yes. And, uh, and, and the audience booed, <laughs> right? Mm. You know, uh, uh, and, and I found that fascinating. Um, and we've seen that with other GOP politicians, you know, endorsing the vaccine, which is what you want, right? You want people from that community, you know, that's the way we're going to be persuasive, right? When you have voices, leaders from those communities, you know, advocating for the vaccine. But, but once it becomes part of your personal identity, once it becomes sort of the, the agenda for your community, the basket of beliefs that your community endorses, even when a leader within that community um, it becomes pro-vaccine, it can be hard 
to change the perspective. So I, you know, yeah. I worry that in 2022, this is going to be the dominant theme that it is all about ideology and politics because it's holy cow, that's going to be a tough fight. How, how do you unmuddy the waters? I mean, and so if, if even if Aaron Rodgers, for example, or Novak Djokovic now were to turn around tomorrow and say, Hey, I'm all pro vaccine. I've studied it. Now uh, people just say, well, you're just a sellout and they'll find the next person because they've I think, latched on to the idea, not even necessarily the person. Anyway, uh, Timothy Caulfield, we always love having you on. Great guest. Um, if people want to read a great book and have a great read along this topic, is Gwyneth Paltrow wrong about everything when celebrity culture and science clash? Uh, Timothy, thank you so much for this. Always appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. It is, uh, it, boy, it, it, is a, it is a complicated one because, again, the waters get muddied. And as Timothy just says, you know, politics are involved and fame is involved and celebrity is involved and philosophies are involved. And how do you untangle all this? The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.